Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody, custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not, interpret, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh." And so to get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, there, were all sorts of baked, there was all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up, sorry, in, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of our Lord. Would the Lord please add his blessing to its reading? You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for the enduring truth that is present within it. We praise you, Lord, for the lessons that we see about the ways that you deal with your servants. Lord, we pray that we would draw encouragement as we consider the situations and circumstances, especially the trials of our lives, that we would see your faithfulness to your people whom you have called through our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
When you go to sleep, what do you dream about? Do you dream about flying or falling or finding money or forgetting to study for an exam, playing in your childhood home or, or being chased and not being able to run away? These are some of the common dreams that, that people dream about. Well, maybe you've had dreams that, that are a lot more bizarre, dreams where you wake up wondering, where on earth did that come from? And at the time, you, you try to, to remember the dream, but, but as you, you try to grab it, it, it slips away from you, like trying to grasp smoke with your, with your fingers. There's other times that, that your dreams seem so real and so, so important that it leaves you wondering what, if anything, that meant. Well, on Friday night, I had a dream in which Mateus from the church and, and I were, were trying to, to catch an aggressive venomous snake, very similar to, to Abby's dream. And also very similar to Abby's dream. Well, this, I was in the jungle, I was in a parking lot, and, and the snake came after me in my dream, and I tried to kick the snake away. Not a good idea with a venomous snake, but I, I tried to kick the venomous snake away, and in my sleep, I kicked Jane in the shin. <laughs> And the next morning, she said that her shin still hurt. Well, it, it, we obviously had a bit of a hard time going back to sleep after I was lying there. What was all that about? And frankly, I have no idea. But that leaves us with the question, does, does God speak to us in dreams? Well, God certainly has spoken in dreams. We've seen this repeatedly in Genesis, how, how God often spoke directly through his, through, to his people through in theophanies. But, but we've noticed there's been a general shift away from that type of disclosure that, that God has, has made to, to, in this toledote of Jacob into more symbolic dreams that, that need to be interpreted. But clearly we can see that God has spoken to his people in dreams. Well, does he do this now? Again, he has done it. He can do it. But I don't think that's the norm in this culture. In my opinion, now that the canon of Scripture has been closed, such dreams have become quite rare, especially in such cultures that have easy access to the Scriptures. But I've heard many stories coming from the mission field, especially in Muslim regions, in which God has indeed given people dreams. Abdul Salib, the Christian convert from Islam who co-authored a book, The Dark Side of Islam, with R.C. Sproul, said in, a, in an interview with Table Talk magazine that, that he said that dreams are an important element in the testimonies of many Muslims who have come to faith in Christ. The dreams, he says, do, do not replace the need for human witness or the scriptures, but most dreams, he says, encourage the individual Muslim to become more open to hear about Jesus from Christians or to visit a church or to read the Bible for the first time. So it seems, at least there, that God is still speaking through dreams. But I, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating for searching for deep hidden words from God in your dreams. Go rather to the clear, revealed word of God in your consciousness. As I said to the kids, the main point of this passage it is not about the interpretation of the dreams. It's about what God is doing in and through and for Joseph. 
And so we've seen already that God has clearly spoken to Joseph in dreams. Twice in Genesis 37, Joseph had dreams which clearly revealed that he would rise up and take authority over his brothers and even over his father and his mother. Remember that that dream caused his brothers to envy him, to hate him, to plot to kill him, to throw him into a pit, and to settle for selling him into slavery. And so here he was in Egypt as a result, indirectly and directly, of this dream. Pharaoh, he lived in the house, Joseph lived in the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, for 10 years until he was falsely accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife and then was cast into, his pri into prison with his feet in fetters and his neck in a collar of iron. Psalm 105, verses 17 and 18. This is a, a dark providence. This is a difficult time in the life of Joseph, to say the least. But in his book, The Doctrine of Divine Providence, Puritan Increase Mather wrote that, that God, he that sits upon the throne doth wonderfully overrule all. He maketh little matters like the small wheel of a clock which sets all the rest a-going. Mather was acknowledging that, that, that nothing is outside of God's sovereign providential rule of the universe and that, that even seemingly small things have an impact and they often have an impact on things that are much larger. The Puritans understood that, that God is sovereign over all creation, governing all, and that even seemingly small things impacted and often directed much more momentous events. But as Sinclair Ferguson points out, they also observed that when you look at, at the inner workings, the, the Puritans, that was one of the things you, you see um, quite, a, quite often in their illustrations, is, is using clocks and the wheels of clocks as, as illustrations. The, the, they, they noted that, that sometimes when you look at the inner workings of a clock, that, that, quite, that the wheels of the clock seem to be often turning in opposite directions. Yet the hands of the clock march continually forwards. And so they understood that, that even difficult things, trials and thwarted plans and, and deferred hopes, things that are referred to as dark providences, were part of God's plan for His glory and for the good of His people. Ligon Dunkett says it like this, Sometimes God works in roundabout ways for specific reasons to accomplish His goal. And though when he does this, it is hard to the point of impossible for us to unravel exactly what he is doing, especially in the midst of our trials, God is in fact accomplishing multiple purposes through his singular providence. Again, Duncan describes these things as dark providences, specifically these, these things when, which at times it seems that, that God himself is, is against us or has forgotten us. And this was certainly a dark providence that Joseph faced. Many here have walked through times of dark providence. Some are walking through times of dark providence even now. What do you do when you encounter a dark providence? when the, the wheels of the clock appear to be turning in opposite directions, when it seems that God has forgotten you. What would Joseph do? 
As he sits here languishing in this prison, would he give up his dream of, of rising to rule? As he was sitting here condemned in this prison, Jeff Lynn from the Electric Light Orchestra provides fitting advice. Maybe you know this song, Hold on tight to your dream. Hold on tight to your dream. When you see your ship go sailing, when you feel your heart is breaking, hold on tight to your dream. It's a long time to be gone. Time just rolls on and on. When you need a shoulder to cry on, when you get sick of trying, just hold on tight to your dream. Now, if we look at it just on that superficial level, there's really no hope in that. That there's really no hope in, in holding on to, to the type of dream that they're talking about here. And, and if you look, I, I, was, uh, there, I found pages and pages and pages of, of quotes talking about, about holding on to your dream, chase your dream, follow your dream. And that's a good thing if you have the right dreams. But so often, most often, almost always, in our culture, their dreams are the wrong dreams. And so as Joseph sits here in this prison, one of the questions is, is Joseph going to hold on tight to his dream, this dream that God had given him that he was going to rise up and rule, or is he going to throw in the towel? Of course, we know that, that in this dark providence, Joseph didn't need to ultimately hold on to his dream, but to hold on to the Lord who had given him the dream. Joseph needed to hold on to the Lord who was holding on to him. We saw that last week repeatedly. Remember that, that, that even though Joseph's circumstances, his external circumstances appeared to be grim, the Lord was with him. We're told four times directly in, in chapter 39 and many times it's implied that the Lord was with Joseph. And even though it appears in chapter 40 that the Lord has forgotten Joseph, the Lord, as we'll see, continues to remember Joseph, and Joseph, in turn, continues to remember the Lord. There's five scenes in this short chapter. Verses 1 to 4, we see the prisoner's circumstances. In verses 5 to 8, the officer's dreams. In verses 9 to 15, the cupbearer's good dream. In verses 16 to 19, the baker's bad dream. And then in verses 20 to 23, fulfilled dreams and unfulfilled obligations. So first of all, in verses 1 to 4, the prisoner's circumstances. Chapter 40 begins where chapter 39 left off, with Joseph imprisoned because of the false allegations of Potiphar's wife. But notice that the story doesn't pick up here with Joseph, but with the royal cupbearer and baker, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker who had committed an offense against Pharaoh. Now, cupbearers and Bakers were important officials in that day. We're, we're not talking about the local bartender and the, the guy who works at the bread company. These were very important people. They worked very closely. Not that those people aren't important. But, but in, in Pharaoh's court, he, works, he worked very closely with Pharaoh. And in a day where, where a leader could easily be poisoned, these men had the most trusted of positions. 
We think about Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes and, and the, the way that he had Artaxerxes' ear. This is a man who, as we see, put the, the cupbearer directly puts the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But these men committed an offense against Pharaoh. Now, the text doesn't say exactly what it was that, that they had done, simply that they had committed an offense, that they had done something wrong. Moses doesn't tell us what they've done wrong because that's not his focus. Just like the dreams really aren't the focus. But, but whatever they did, it angered Pharaoh so that he threw them into prison. And they were in custody, we're told, of the captain of the guard. And who is the captain of the guard? Potiphar. Potiphar is, is the captain of the guard. And so Potiphar here puts, well, we're told then that these, these men are put in the same prison as our friend Joseph. So the plot thickens, but now it, it thickens even more as, as Potiphar puts the cupbearer and the baker into Joseph's charge to attend to them. We're told that this arrangement continued for some time. So here you have three prisoners in the same prison. And on the, circumstances, on the surface, their circumstances look similar, but they, they really couldn't be any more different. By the end of, of this chapter, the circumstances of two out of three will have changed dramatically. One will be free, one will be dead, and one will remain in prison. But as the story continues into chapter 41, it will become clear that chapter 40 is really the turning point for Joseph. God's providence is behind these events. Now this brings something to mind. I, I, I don't, it's not directly in the text, but it's something that, that I often wonder about. The, the next time you are, are in a, a gathering of a large group of people, say at the mall or a, a sporting event, stop and consider the people around you. Pause and look around you at these people. You'll see all kinds of people, many, many of whom though on the, on the surface don't really seem that different from you. Most of them have families and jobs and joys and trials and hopes and dreams, but ask yourself where they're headed. Ask yourself what their circumstances really are. Again, we see three different people in this chapter with, with three similar external circumstances, but who by God's providence were headed in three very different directions. But the reality is there are only two kinds of people and there's only two directions. Many, most of the people you look at, when you look around in that crowd, most of them are headed for death. But not just physical death, they're headed for eternal death, endless torment under the just wrath of Almighty God. And only a few, only the Lord knows how many, are headed for eternal life with Christ. As I look out at you, I, I, I trust that the circumstances is very different, that, that the vast majority, hopefully all, are headed for eternal life with Christ. But don't presume. Don't presume for others and don't presume for yourself. Make a point of intentionally 
talking to others about their relationship with Christ, asking them about their relationship with Christ. Do that today. Do that regularly. Make a point of regularly examining your own heart to see where you stand with Christ. And maybe, just maybe, you will look back on today as a turning point in their life or in your life. But as we consider Joseph languishing in this prison, the, the one who dreamed of ruling, now serving in a prison, we, we think about, about the way that people try to come to grips with these things, with these dark providences, sometimes called theodicy. Many, even in the visible church today, will look at such dark providences and conclude that God is not in control of these things. Pastors will try to comfort people by telling them that, that God doesn't want bad things to happen to you. Well, I guess that depends on your definition of bad. This cold comfort really goes directly against what the scriptures teach. It goes directly against what this passage teaches. I remember where I was talking with the Harnets about this the other night. I remember watching an interview of the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney on ABC television in Australia, much like our CBC, which will give you a sense of where they're at, um, after the 2004 tsunami that killed over 230,000 people in 14 countries. It's horrific. But, but as, but as this, this Archbishop, this professing Christian, as he was being interviewed, the interviewer was saying, well, where's God in situations like that? And, and this was a live interview. I was praying for him as the interview was taking place. And, and he said, well, God's not in control of things like that. I was deeply saddened for him and, and for those who were influenced by his teaching. That such things are horrific, but, but what, what is more concerning? What is more worrisome to think that God does things that we don't understand? But I think that God isn't really in control. It was a dark providence. That, that tsunami was, was a horrible situation. Yes, but the archbishop provided cold comfort indeed. Don't offer cold comfort to those who are struggling, to those who are in trials. Offer them the hope that the scriptures give. Offer them the hope that, that can be found ultimately in the gospel, in the, the sovereign love and wisdom of our Lord and God. Verses 5 to 8, we see the officer's dreams. So one night there in the prison, the cupbearer and the baker had a dream, and we're, we're told from the outset that, this dream that these dreams had an interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning as a faithful attendant, he noticed that both men were troubled. He wants to help. So he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? They reply, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Notice that, that what troubles them seemingly more than the dreams is the fact that there is no interpreter for their dreams. Egyptians in that era commonly believed that the gods gave you dreams, but they didn't believe that the gods provided an interpretation, that they relied on professional dream diviners who would interpret the dream for you. And they, in that era, they actually developed a whole body of writings that were, were lists of, of dream interpretations. I saw the same thing as, as I, I looked up um, common themes in dreams and I saw that you can look up on psychology today and they will tell you what your dreams mean apparently 
Well, I guess this is a, a common thing because one Christian website right, talking about these things right off the bat said that they are not a, dream, a Christian dream interpretation service and they do not provide, they do not interpret dreams. But these men, who they, they, these dreams were, were troublesome to them. Victor Hamilton says, for, for them, a dream without an accompanying interpretation is like a diagnosis without a prognosis. Well, I would say it's actually more like, like a symptom without a diagnosis or a prognosis. They believed that something important was being communicated here, but they didn't know what. And so Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Let's stop for a moment and just think about what a contrast is from Joseph that we saw in chapter 37, who foolishly told his dreams to his family and troubled them. Now he's concerned about the dreams of, of others that are troubling them. Now there Joseph was looking for an opportunity to, to lead. Now he's looking for an opportunity to serve. Some people come to church looking for opportunities to lead. I had an individual here just a couple of weeks ago, and, and he, he said, I want to come and I want to teach. And thankfully, Joshua and Vince flagged it and, and began to, to talk to him and found out that, that he had very aberrant doctrine. And so they had, had several conversations with him, and, and I had one as well. And, and it was, it was, he was a, a kind man, but, but it was very clear that, that his, his beliefs were very different from, from what, very different from what we believe as a church. Some people come looking for opportunities to lead, but rather we should look for opportunities to serve. I remember a professor in seminary telling us a story about how he was interviewed for a position in the church, and, and after the, the interview with the leaders in the church, one of the leaders showed him a tour of the building and said, and this is the broom closet. And this, this professor said, well, I was like, what? The broom closet? I, I, I want to pastor. I want to teach. I don't need to know about the broom closet. And, and, you know, I thought about, I didn't think much of it at the time. But as I think about this later on, as I reflect on it, I think this was probably a test. Saying, is this, is this a man who's going to serve in the church? Because that's when, when, when the church looks for somebody who's going to lead. It's somebody who's going to serve serve. And Joseph is being given an opportunity to serve here. The Lord is also providing Joseph with an opportunity to testify of God, to reveal his faith in God, and to glorify God there in that prison. Joseph is showing his faithfulness not just to his duties, but he's showing faithfulness to God. He's telling the, the cupbearer and the baker that, that dream diviners aren't the answer, that God is the answer. Daniel gives a similar answer to Nebuchadnezzar. I can't interpret dreams, but God can. And of course, this points to the events that, that take place in the next chapter, Pharaoh's dream. But, but there's something else going on here as well. Joseph is demonstrating that he hasn't given up on his dream and that he hasn't given up on God. As Alan Ross explains, had he given up on his own dreams, he would never have offered to interpret the two in this chapter. Did you understand what's being said here? 
Even though he is stuck in this prison, even though he is in circumstances that are presently a long way off from what he had thought and hoped they would be from his dreams in chapter 37, he still trusts that God is able to speak through dreams. His trust in God is, is implicit. And as the Lord was in the forefront of his mind when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, the Lord is still present in the forefront of his mind. So at least indirectly here, he is evangelizing the cupbearer and the baker from the overflow of his thoughts towards God. Friends, much of our evangelism is like that too. It, it comes out of the overflow of, of our thoughts and our, our, towards God, of our love towards God and of our overflow of those towards others. What does that say about you when you don't tell others about God? You have the opportunity at all times, but perhaps especially in trials, to testify of God's providence and of your faith in God's providence. Make the most of every opportunity. And, and you know what often happens when, especially when you're in trials and, and you seek opportunities to love and serve others, those trials, even the most difficult ones take on a different meaning. You begin to adopt a, a new other-centered focus. And then you receive comfort. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now Joseph can't see his deliverance out of this prison, but he can see the Lord. He knew firsthand what Charles Spurgeon taught, that God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And we cannot trace his hand. We must trust his heart. Joseph trusted God's heart. Now the scriptures remind us that, that faith is a gift. Romans 12.3 says that, that we should think of ourselves humbly with sober judgment for each person has received the measure of faith that God has assigned. Ephesians 2.8-9 as well talk about, about faith being a gift from God. God has given Joseph faith for these circumstances and Joseph's faith is a testimony to the fact that God is still with Joseph in Joseph's heart and also for Joseph. God, Joseph remains faithful to God because God remains faithful to Joseph, even though it doesn't look like it. God is at work in his heart. Well, very briefly, let's, let's take a look at the two dreams themselves. In verses 9 to 15, the, the cupbearer's good dream. Though it wouldn't become apparent for, for two more years, as I mentioned earlier, this, this moment is really the turning point in Joseph's circumstances. The cupbearer dreams about a vine with three branches. The, the branches budded and produced blossoms and clusters that ripened into grapes. And then, and then in the dream, the cupbearer is, is holding Pharaoh's cup and he's, and he's pressing the, the grapes, took some of the grapes and he's pressing them into the cup and then he puts the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And God here gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. Joseph explains that the 
The three branches are three days. This is a parallel to the seven cows and seven ears of grain in Pharaoh's chapter that represents seven years in chapter 41. Joseph explains that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up the cupbearer's head and restore him to his former position, placing Pharaoh's cup in his hand. And then in chapter, in verse 14 rather, Joseph asks the cupbearer, now it says, remember me. Remember me and do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh to get me out of this prison. We see here in a, a rare and, and I think justifiable moment of self-defense, Joseph explains that he was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and was imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Now, I've heard it said that, that everyone in prison is innocent. At least they claim to be. But this time it's true. Joseph has been unjustly thrown into a pit by his brothers. Now he was unjustly thrown into a pit because of Potiphar's wife. So there's a... a there's a, a tension here. What's going to happen? Is, the, is, is, are these, is this dream going to be fulfilled? Is the cupbearer going to indeed remember Joseph? Well, then let's turn briefly to the baker's bad dream in verses 6 to 19. 16 to 19, rather. It is, it's the baker's turn. He sees that the, the cupbearer's dream had a favorable interpretation, and, and he hopes the same for himself. He explains that, that in his dream, there are three baskets full of baked goods on the top of his head. A variety of baked goods. And on the, in the top basket, there were baked goods for Pharaoh. But he says that in his dream, the, the birds were, were plucking and, and eating the food out of the, out of the top basket. Notice that unlike the cupbearer's dream, Pharaoh isn't present with the baker. And the fact that the the baker is unable to chase away the birds, does not bode well for him. And again, the Lord gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. Joseph begins as he, as he had with the cupbearer. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. So far, so good. But he will lift up your head from you. In other words, from off of you. And he will hang you on a tree and the, the birds will eat flesh from you. This, this is horrific. But it's true. Joseph is a faithful messenger and he must faithfully deliver the message no matter how difficult it would be to hear. Calvin points out the parallel with the preacher and the prophet. He says that the job of the preacher and the prophet is to tell you the truth as God has told it to them, even if it's unpleasant. Friends, I hope and pray that I, I never have to share bad news of, of this magnitude with any of you. But it is my commitment before God to tell you the truth, even when it's unpleasant for you to hear. Finally, in verses 20 to 23, we see fulfilled dreams and unfulfilled obligations. Well, now we find out the significance of, of what was going to take place three days later. It's, it's Pharaoh's birthday, and he makes a feast for his servants. And what do feasts involve? Food and drink. 
Pharaoh, in the fulfillment of his dreams, again lifts up the heads. He now lifts up the heads of the cupbearer and the baker. But again, there's no reason given. In fulfillment of the dreams, Pharaoh restores the cupbearer to his former position and he places the cup again in Pharaoh's hand, just as Joseph had interpreted. But the baker, we're told, Pharaoh hanged. And all of this happened exactly as Joseph had interpreted. At this point, we're expecting words something like this. And the cupbearer told Pharaoh about Joseph's interpretation, and Pharaoh sent and had Joseph released from prison. But it doesn't happen. Now, Joseph wasn't at, at Pharaoh's feast. He, feast. he wasn't, wasn't party to, to what had taken place there, but no doubt he was fully expecting to be released. But again, it didn't happen. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He forgot him. Fast forward to, to chapter 41. Two whole years. Joseph languished in that prison for two whole years after the fulfillment of those dreams. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself in, in, in talking about what's going to happen there, but, but I wonder, have you been in a trial? Maybe it's a physical trial or, or a relational trial or a financial trial or a spiritual trial that has continued and continued and continued. Maybe you've even felt forgotten by God. Maybe the circumstances of, of, of your life have made you wonder whether God really loves you. Or maybe even has made you wonder whether God is even really in control. Or friends, someone else, over 500 years after Joseph, would feel forgotten by God. He felt forsaken by God. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 15, to Mark rather, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 34 and following. In events that we remember every day, but particularly on Good Friday, the Lord Jesus cried out from the cross. Verse 34. Hello, I. Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, those standing by didn't understand. They thought that he was calling Elijah. But he wasn't calling Elijah. He was calling out to his heavenly father. But the heavens were like steel above him. He received no answer. Someone ran and filled a sponge with, with sour wine and, and put it to his lips and said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the, bottom, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. When the centurion who stood, by, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
The father poured out his just and holy wrath on his son, but he did not ultimately forget or forsake the son. Three days later, he would raise him from the grave and raise him to his former place at his own side. Joseph is a picture in this of Jesus. The father did not forget or forsake Joseph. Yes, it would take two whole years, as we're going to see in the next chapter, but he will raise Joseph up to, to the second highest position in all of Egypt. The path that Joseph takes is the path that Jesus walked, the path that leads to glory via the cross. This is the path that Israel would take as well. Child of God, the Father has not forgotten or forsaken you. He crushed his son to redeem you. The road to glory, your road to glory, like that of Joseph, like that of Israel, follows the same path that Jesus walked. Your path leads to glory via the cross. In reference to our passage this morning, Calvin says, Joseph, therefore, seemed to himself to be buried in perpetual oblivion until the Lord again suddenly rekindles the light which has been smothered and almost extinguished. Thus, when he might have delivered the holy man directly from prison, he chose to lead him around by circuitous paths. The better to prove his patience and to manifest by the mode of his deliverance that he has wonderful methods of working hidden from our view. He does this that we may learn not to measure by our own sense the salvation which he has promised us, but that we may suffer ourselves to be turned hither or thither by his hand until he shall have performed his work. Are you facing a dark providence in your life at this moment? If you are not, if the Lord tarries, you will. We all will. Our path is the path that Jesus walked. Glory via the cross. We often sing here the, the hymn by, by William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way. The, the line says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But if I could improve on Cooper's words, behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. Faith sees a smiling face by the grace of God, no matter what you are going through. Like Joseph, you too can hold tight to your dream. Hold on tight to your dream so long as your dream is not the kind of dream that the world dreams of. Don't settle. Dream big. Dream of a growing relationship with the Lord. Dream of overcoming that besetting sin. Dream of, dream of overcoming your fear of man 
in fulfilling God's command to evangelism. Dream of being used by God to advance his kingdom. Dream of your deliverance, not from trials, not even from prison, but from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Dream of your deliverance to Christ's presence for all eternity. Hold on tight to that dream because God is holding on to you. Let's pray together. Sovereign God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you as we are reminded this morning of this fact that you are sovereign over all of the circumstances of our lives. Lord, even the seeming minutia, for Lord, you have promised that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. Lord, you tell us in your word that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among all brothers, among brothers. Father, we pray that you would help us to see your loving, sovereign, wise hand in the middle of, of all the circumstances and, and trials of life. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to have the eyes of faith, to see our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. Lord, that we have no reason to doubt your love for us because you crushed your son for our sins. We have no reason to doubt your faithfulness because you raised him from the grave three days later and he has now ascended to your right hand in glory. Lord, help us, I pray, to have you in the forefront of our minds no matter what is going on in our lives. They will testify of your faithfulness to a world that so desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.